happening. Some birds are disappearing even faster. For instance, in the same 50 years, one half of all grassland birds died off. Birds are an indicator species, a sort of canary in the coal mine to all Earth's biological systems. Unfortunately, this massive die-off is just the latest in a long line of recent wildlife tragedies. My name is Arne Oliveira, and this is a Small World Radio production. Hi, this is Bobby Humphrey. You're listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. Up in the morning and out to school, the teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man, you study them hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. Hello to the tribe of love listening to today's broadcast of Talk Out of School. Bienvenidos mi gente, bienvenidos a todos. Welcome my WBAI family to Talk Out of School. My name is Daniel Alicea. My pronouns are he and his. I'm the proud son of Manny and Alma. And I want to welcome you to Talk Out of School. I'm coming to you once more from WBAI. We're listener-sponsored, locally-controlled, a non-commercial Pacifica radio here in New York City. We're found on 99.5 FM on your radio dial. We're also being live-streamed on WBAI.org. At Talk Out of School, we focus on the issues affecting public schools and public education here in New York City on a state level and nationally. And if you'd like to listen again later or share today's broadcast with a friend or loved one, it is also available as a podcast on the WBAI archives or you can find us on Apple and Spotify. Today we are serving up another great show. My co-host, Lainey Hampson, will join us. She will give us an update on education news. We are also going to speak to two faith leaders who signed a mass open letter that was signed by over 135 other faith leaders and faith organizations. A letter asking New York City Mayor Eric Adams to restore the budget cuts to New York City schools. We'll be joined by Brandon Reuter. He is an abolitionist, a youth worker, an organizer, and a chaplain. Also with us is Eli Valentin. He is an ordained minister and has pastored several churches here in New York City. We'll speak to these two faith leaders in just a moment. Let me read to you their press release. Tuesday, August 30th, more than 135 faith leaders and faith organizations representing nearly 200,000 New Yorkers penned and sent a letter to New York City Mayor Eric Adams calling on him to restore millions of dollars cut from schools in the FY23 budget that passed in June 2022, following weeks of outrage from school communities. The first day of school, September 8th, is less than a week away, and Mayor Adams has yet to restore the $469 million cut from school budgets. Upset parents and educators and students have been trying to get answers from Mayor Adams on why he won't restore the cuts since July. In response, the mayor has often told New Yorkers to pray for the restoration of cuts, despite having the power to restore funds immediately. In separate confrontations on August 8th, August 9th, August 17th, and August 20th, Mayor Eric Adams told parents, educators, students, and or organizers calling on him to restore the cuts to pray. In response, religious leaders, theological scholars, and interfaith chaplains invite Mayor Adams to join them in prayer and action to support students and schools and use the power he has to adequately fund education by restoring the cuts. The letter's signatories reflect a range of traditions, including notable leaders from the Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Sikh, and spiritual but not religious traditions and representation of all five boroughs. On the line with me is my incomparable co-host, Lainey Hampson. She is also the executive director of Class Size Matters. 
Welcome, Lainey. Thank you for having me, Daniel. So, Lainey, a lot of news still about these budget cuts, but there was also a published report by the, the NAEP scores. Can you tell us, our listeners, a little bit about these NAEP tests and also what what are we hearing about these results? Right. Well, these are national tests that are given every two years in different forms. The ones that came out um, just the other day were for nine-year-olds uh, called the long-term NAEP exams, um, and they do not change at all. They haven't changed in 50 years, and so they're considered more reliable as a gauge of um, of, of student achievement over time than, for example, the state tests, which change in their design and in their grading, you know, it seems like every single year um, and are not reliable. Um, but these tend to be reliable. They've been given, as I said, for 50 years. They were given in hundreds of schools across the country in January to March 2020 and then again in January March 2022. So right before the pandemic hit and then um, last year, and what they showed was the sharpest decline, really the first decline in results in 50 years. And according to the, the people at the National Center for Education Statistics who design and, and administer the test, this was clearly due to the pandemic, though what it's not clearly due to despite all the discussion since and all the editorializing and the mainstream narrative from the media that somehow this was due to the closure of schools and remote learning during the pandemic we really don't know what the what the what the uh, decline is due to because the pandemic had so many different effects on people's lives um, people getting sick family members dying interruption in schools, even when they remained open, but, um, you know, a lack of attendance and kids themselves and teachers getting sick over this period. So all that led to a lot of disruption in learning. And it's pretty clear that um, there were declines in almost all parts of the country um, in reading and math, but with a few exceptions, though. So that the mainstream narrative in the in in the media is that, you know, remote learning was terrible. It was a huge tragedy that schools ever closed at all. And we did this tremendous disservice to students. Um, Nate Silver, uh, the statistician, proclaimed on Twitter, it was one of the biggest policy disasters in a generation. And there are books coming out about that too. But what I believe, having lived through it at the time, there were very good public health reasons to close the schools, especially in New York City, where people were dropping right and left like flies. Epidemiologists and, and virologists begged the mayor to close the schools. And we continue to have serious high rates of COVID. We still don't know what the long-term effects of COVID will be, both on adults and children. So um, I think retrospectively, we're not going to know probably ever what the costs and the benefits were, but certainly it was a very, very um, supportable uh, decision at the time to close the schools and then have at least a hybrid learning and let parents decide whether they wanted their kids to attend in person or not the following year. Um, so the results that, that showed declines, there were some exceptions in that. For example, cities where there were more school closures um, did not see any drop in reading scores, which is interesting. And fewer kids learned remotely in Midwest compared to the Northeast, but the average declines in math and reading in those parts of the country were about the same. So there's really no way to look at these scores and know for sure what led to these declines. Um, another interesting factoid from the surveys was that the group that was most likely to learn remotely was Asian, and yet that group uh, of students saw the least amount of decline. So um, 
the other thing that I think is very regrettable is not just jumping to conclusions that school closures were horrific, given the alternative of the potential uh, sickness and loss of life that could have happened without that, but also the policy prescriptions that are being made now um, by pundits and, and various so-called experts. Um, Professor Martin West, who was quoted in the New York Times, said the only way to address this quote-unquote learning loss or test score decline was an increase in, in, in instructional time through a longer school day or a longer school year, which the research for this is very, very weak. And we've had countless um, national studies on this and countless examples in New York City, including with the recovery, with the renewal schools, which had longer school days um, that did not improve results at all. Um, U.S. students already spend more time in the classroom than students in most any other country. And last year, there were about $600 million in federal funds that were unspent by schools um, in New York City, many of them because they couldn't institute the longer school day and those Saturday programs because uh, students didn't want to show up for these uh, programs and teachers were very burnt out and they couldn't get them to teach at these programs. So I think that um, it's really unfortunate. We've been through uh, over 10 years of, 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 of test scores that, that had flattened um, even before COVID, and so we'd seen some declines in the NAEP scores in, in New York City, in math in particular. And I believe that that was due to both the increase in class sizes since the Great Recession, which really we, we hadn't recovered from in terms of class size in New York City and elsewhere, and also the Common Core, which was and remains a negative influence on the teaching of English and the teaching of math. Um, nationally and in New York City. And so the last thing our teachers and our schools and most of all our students need are a lot of new prescriptions based on bad research, based on people who've never taught in the classroom. And instead, you know, we should be doing the one thing we have not yet tried, which research supports, which is reducing class size. Unfortunately, the mayor has not bent on the budget cuts to schools that he's imposing, which range from anywhere between 500 million and about a billion dollars, depending on whether you count the cuts in the federal funds as well. And Kathy Hochul still has not signed the class size bill. So we're sort of in a waiting game right now. Um, it looks not great for next year in terms of class sizes, in terms of kids getting the programs they need because of these budget cuts. And I'm just afraid that uh, we'll all be taken away both in New York City and nationally with some really uh, useless and possibly even negative and expensive um, uh, rep so-called remedies to these, this uh, to this test score decline um, instead of taking the obvious lessons, which is we need smaller classes. And these, the, prob probably the worst thing about the data is that um, as might be able to be expected, the kids who saw the greatest losses are the kids who were already struggling and low performers in terms of test scores. And so it widened the achievement or opportunity gap, which is an ongoing issue in our schools and in all schools across the country. And those are the kids, of course, who benefit the most from smaller classes as well. So I hope that we, we read the right lessons, our political leaders and our um, corporate reformers read the right lessons out of this, and it doesn't simply lead to uh, more ineffective reforms and also more privatization with, with um, more push for charter schools and vouchers, which is also a huge danger, both here in New York City and across the country. Well, Lenny, I could definitely see some of the, the local privatizers trying to weaponize some of this data, but as you said, uh, some of it doesn't seem to correlate directly with so many other factors, and those reading scores um, in, in the cities seem to be 
um, you said the same. That also apply to math. And of course, um, I guess we also need to wait on some of the, the state scores to, to really start making some determinations on how it affected us locally. Yeah, uh, uh, supposedly in October, we're going to get um, the main NAEP, which is a slightly different exam, which hasn't been given as long, but has been given, you know, for over 20 years. Um, and we'll get those results disaggregated um, in, for fourth and eighth graders in New York State and New York City in particular. And as opposed to many other people who think that standardized test scores are useless, I actually believe that it's important data to take a look at. I'm totally against high stakes tests because, among other things, it, it tends to bias the results. Um, but the NAEPs, I think, are important to look at. And among other things, the NAEP scores in the past have allowed us to prove that the state test scores have been inflated and that there's been manipulation to make it look like uh, there's improvements at, at the state level and also at the city level. So mayor after mayor from Bloomberg and de Blasio have uh, pointed to imaginary increases in state test scores to prove that they're doing the right thing with the schools. When you look at the NAEP scores for the state and the city and you don't see those improvements at all. So basically you see flatlining and some decline in New York City over the past uh, 20 years. So we will see what happens when these scores come out. Um, no one's going to be expecting improvements and I think most likely we will see some sort of declines, but we shouldn't get hysterical about that because, you know, as we've seen already through these NAEP scores, it's happened everywhere. We did experience a once in a lifetime or once in a hundred years pandemic, which has been hugely disruptive and dislocated people's lives in many, many ways uh, with, you know, over a million people dying. So uh, I don't think that we need to overgeneralize about what was the right um, decisions in terms of open schools or closed schools uh, that when you're asking about this, uh, the cities, uh, the cities did see significant declines in math, unlike reading, um, but so did every other part of the country. So this is really um, a turning point, or if you want to call it an inflection point, where we see whether the overdramatization uh, of these test scores will lead us in yet another wrong direction here in New York City and nationally, or hopefully in the right direction, and that more and more people, including the mayor, will realize that what our kids really need is the close support and feedback from their teachers in, in, in the form of smaller classes, and that nationally um, we'll move in that direction because we don't, I don't think we need longer school days, longer school years summer uh, Saturday schools. Um, there's been no evidence that that works overall and especially for our most struggling kids. So let's see what happens with all that. Well, thank you, Lanny, for your update. Thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. I'm on the line with Brandon Reuger. He is an abolitionist, a youth worker, an organizer, and also a chaplain who has served in uh, our New York City hospital system. He's also actively um, pursuing a degree in social work. Uh, welcome, Brandon. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Brandon, I, I really want to talk to you about this letter that was um, sent to the mayor this week. Over 135 plus faith leaders and organizations signed on to this letter asking the mayor to restore the school budget cuts. Can you give us some context to, as to how this came about and why? Yeah, so essentially um, there's been upset parents, educators, and students that have been confronting the mayor throughout the summer. Ever since in June, he decided to cut um, more than $469 million from the next school year's budget. Um, and so as these 
parents, educators, and students, myself included. I'm um, a social work student and just about to begin a social work internship at a high school in the Bronx. Um, We have been confronting him, and he began to answer us by asking us to pray for him um, a few weeks ago, and he asked us to pray for the safety of our city. He told an organizer that a community member who cares like very deeply about students that confronted him that if he had a, if she had a close relationship with God that um, God would put it on her heart to know that he's going to do what's best for his city um, and so this group of people rightfully is very upset about this this rhetoric especially since many people are um, spiritual or religious or both themselves and kind of just organized around um, like resisting this narrative that the mayor um, is only just going to offer prayer for the safety of the city when we know that he also has the power to restore the cuts to public schools. So um, several groups have been involved in organizing um, this faith leader letter and reaching out to faith leaders um, to sign on to the letter. Uh, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice has been involved, New Yorkers for Racially Just Public Schools, the People's Plan, NYC, and the New York City Movement Chaplain Collective, which is the group that I'm a part of. And so can you tell us a little bit about the signatories, um, those that did sign on? There are some notable um, spiritual and faith leaders that have signed on. Um, So really big names have signed on to it, which is really exciting to know that like these big names care about um, what's going on in schools in our city. Uh, Some of the people who have signed on include Dr. Cornell West, who's a public intellectual and Christian philosopher. He's a um, professor at Union Theological Seminary. Um, There's also uh, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who's also a New York City public school parent um, and a co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Reverend Dr. Uh, Jackie Lewis and, and her church also signed on, um, Middle Collegiate Church. Um, and then uh, th- those are all Christians. And then there's, it's, you know, there's a pretty wide range of multi-faith support. Uh, Dr. Simran G. Singe, um, who's a a pretty notable Sikh scholar, educator, writer, and activist. There's uh, Rabbi Ellen Lippman, who's done a lot of organizing around um, criminal justice reform and anti-criminalization. Um, yeah, so we have, you know, a, a great wide range of folks who have signed on and leaders from many traditions and who are involved in their com- uh, communities. And I understand this open letter is still um, kind of open to any other faith leaders that might even be listening to today's show that might want to sign on to urge the mayor to now act on on restoring these cuts. Is, is that right? Yeah, folks are still welcome to, to sign on. At, it's bit.ly, uh, one of those bit.ly links, and then dash restore the cuts or slash restore the cuts dash letter sign on. So bit.ly slash restore the cuts dash letter sign on. So I think what's really energizing about this is that you said this has been a multi-faith initiative. The letter included just some language as to what some faiths, even within their scriptures, feel about um, the work that that social justice also means um, doing what's right by our children, um, especially in education. Could you add to that? Yeah, I think it's, so I'm actually myself agnostic, or I draw on like abolition as a spiritual framework for myself and like kind of black feminist abolitionist theory. That's really where I draw my own um, frameworks from. Um, And so even just like thinking about my own experience and like, um, you know, that, like we take care of each other is like such a central principle to that, um, to that framework for me and like seeing it through each of these traditions. So for example, um, the Islamic tradition, they cite a text that says, take action, Allah will see it. And when you will 
you return to him, he will tell you what you've done. And they also cited a text that says, blessed is the reward of the doer. And so I think one of the things that like from my own personal experience as a spiritual, but maybe not religious person that fits into these categories. And then like also examples like this is we're really calling on the mayor to not just pray, but to also take action and to understand that our faith is an impetus for us to take care of each other, to take care of our community. Um, yeah. Yeah. As, as a, a pastor's kid, my, my dad was a pastor in the Jackson Heights area, first in the Bronx and then in the Jackson Heights area, he pastored for over 30 years. Um, I know in the, in the epistle to James, it says faith without works is dead faith. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, that's, that's definitely something that I think the mayor needs to hear if he's asking for prayer about these issues, but not acting when he does have the power to act. I, I think that that faith might be dead. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that I keep thinking about with this um, rhetoric that he keeps using um, is there, I, there's this like language of spiritual bypassing that comes from a Buddhist teacher and we cite it in the, in the letter as well. And it's essentially this idea that we're going to use this like spiritual language as a way to scapegoat what our responsibility is to our faith commitments, what our responsibility is to like our relationship with the divine or God or gods or whatever it is. Um, And then to each other, which we're also called to be in relationship to. So, I mean, I personally see that. I think all the people who are signing onto this letter see it, that this mayor is using this like spiritual bypassing rhetoric to, shirk his responsibility that he actually has to the young people, the families in the city and to restore the $469 million cuts to public schools. So I understand there's going to be a a prayer vigil this coming week. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about it? Yeah. So we're going to have a a vigil uh, action at um, Tweed Courthouse on Wednesday, September 7th. So just a few days from now, and we're gathering on the steps of Tweed at 4.30 p.m. We're going to have a few different elected officials, parents, students, um, faith leaders share their experiences about how their faith calls on them um, in this particular situation to be supportive of fully funding our schools. These days, the the word social justice seems to have become divisive and and polarized. Growing up, to me, the word social justice was very much a part of my faith tradition. Mm -hmm. And my understanding, it's a part of of all, if not most, um, faith traditions. I mean, I think that as we see in this letter to the mayor, um, that all of our faith traditions call on us to um, do what is best for our communities and the people that we are in relationship to. Um, And that is at the core or one of the core things to me, at least of social justice is transforming the world and the conditions that oppress people in this world. And particularly for the people that I'm, in community with, um, as well as the people I'm not in community with. Um, but I think that, um, that is like a central tenet of our traditions. And of course, in each tradition, um, there's the opposite side of that, uh, where people would say differently. Um, But I think that those people have not truly grappled with the radical calls that many of these traditions are asking of them. Um, I used to be a Christian and I like still position myself in relationship to Christian, even though I'm not, you know, and I like find so much value in the radical teachings of Jesus and other stories, you know, like there's so many stories that tell us to resist the empire, like the empire, the the mayor is trying to build and while he's defunding public schools and trying to support privatization and um, funding charter schools instead. 
Yeah, I feel as someone who's probably um, now agnostic as well, mm -hmm. I do draw still from the teachings and the tradition that I had and, and everything about the, at least the Judeo-Christian um, tradition is about really fighting for the least of these, mm -hmm. um, for the widow, for the stranger, for the or orphan, for those that are not privileged. And so, yeah, I, I think that for some social justice, for whatever reason, has become a political term. But um, you know what? Maybe it is. Um, we we have the power to influence our communities, and uh, we should be fighting for those that are, that are vulnerable and the marginalized. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, every term is political. In my in my understanding, like the term Christian to me is such a political term, and like there are reasons why I don't claim the term Christian, but I still claim like some sort of relationship or position to it because I have that historical context, even if I'm not. So I think that that's like, you know, an example of how social justice is definitely a political term. And um, like we need to embrace that in some sort of way. I always struggle with the line. I do think there needs to be a, a really firm line with the separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. However, as I've gotten older. I, I also see that faith-based groups and faith-based organizations play a really instrumental and important role in, in our society, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Your thoughts on the role of faith-based organizations, especially in our city schools? This show is about city schools. What should that role look like? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I mean, I've been a youth worker in schools, um, and I'm just starting uh, social work school to be a school social worker, but I haven't really had the faith context or the faith lens as much in schools. Um, and I'm really drawing on my experience as a, hosp a ho public hospital chaplain here. I was a chaplain resident at um, Bellevue Hospital, and I worked mostly with adolescents um, particularly a lot of like black and brown femmes and queer and trans adolescents. And so that's like really kind of the lens I'm taking to answering this question. Um, and then also my experience working with other chaplains and how they interact with others. And I think that there is a place for relig both religious and spiritual conversations. I found that working with young people there was really a craving for that, especially young people who were in these like intense situations. And I think so many of our young people in public schools, especially due to the defunding of public schools are in, you know, disinvested situations that creates existential like conditions in a lot of ways. And um, I think that like we owe it to our young people to make space for those conversations. I have no idea, you know, or I may, I have ideas, I guess, but I don't know that they are like the ideas to implement um, to, of how like actually make space for those conversations because we really haven't done a good job of that. Um, it's been pretty binary, like, and rightfully so because, you know, Christians have taken up a lot of space in public schools. Um, and so I think, yeah, I guess the, the heart of my answer here is that like we owe it to our young people to make space for religious and spiritual questions and then how that relates to their own like yearnings for justice in their lives and to improve their own social conditions in relationships with each other. Brandon, I also understand that you um, wrote a benediction recently in response to the mayor's calls for prayer um, regarding uh, school budget. Could you uh, share with our listeners that benediction? Absolutely. I wrote this after um, seeing the first, I wrote this after seeing the first uh, person be told by the mayor to pray for him and for the safety of our city. It was what he asked her to pray for. So this is called a prayer for a safer city. 
When the mayor fails to keep us safe, may the people be so angry that we bird dog the mayor until the mayor answers our demands. When elected officials fail to keep us safe, may the people be so organized that we out-organize every politician working against our communities. When powerful interests lobby against the people and fail to keep us safe, may the people be so powerful that we build greater power to challenge the powers that be. When the city fails to keep us safe, may the people be so compassionate that we give to our neighbors and workers when we need to. When heartless prayer fails to keep us safe, may we do the work to keep each other safe. A hearty amen. What a powerful prayer. Uh, thank you, Brandon, for taking your time today. And thank you so much for organizing around this issue and really bringing bringing into uh, this space um some some necessary conversation about faith and uh, in our schools thank you for making the space i hope it's helpful for people listening you're listening to talk at a school on wbai 99.5 fm new york i'm on the line with eli valentin he is an ordained minister he also pastors several churches here in the city He's a graduate of Union Theological Seminary. He's done uh, political work locally and on a statewide level. And uh, he also is a signatory of, of this letter to the mayor to restore cuts. Welcome, Eli. Thank you so much, Dan. Good to be here. So, Eli, can you tell us how you were approached about this letter to the mayor, why you signed it, and your thoughts on these budget cuts to our New York City schools? Yeah, so, um, I mean, obviously, as a political observer, um, I'm fa fairly uh, up to speed with what's happening around our city and state. And, um, and obviously, this is one of the pivotal issues that we face in the city. Um, and yeah, I would consider it, uh, you know, right up there with, with everything else that, that is of uh, a concern to city residents alongside, you know, public safety matters and, and all that. I mean, you know, our, the, the education of our children, um, and the well-being of our teachers and administrators is, is also a pivotal part of our city. So, um, uh, so I was familiar with what was happening and, and also Kalidis, um, who is, um, very, uh, an, an education advocate. As many know, um, has, has kept me informed about, uh, some of the organizing that has transpired as a result of, of the mayor's, uh, actions, right? To, to cut, um, from the education budget. So and that's how I was, uh, alerted to the, to the letter. And I gladly signed on because I really see this, um, as a moral issue and, any time that any decision that is made by political leaders that adversely affect children, that is a moral issue. Um, so for me, it, it was not, um, I, I did not struggle with the decision to say, yes, yeah, sign me on. Um, it was easy uh, precisely because of that. And so in speaking to Brandon a, a little bit earlier, is it is it too cynical to say that the mayor's been asking for prayer um, every time he's been approached about this issue? Just your thoughts on how he's approaching this. Um, your thoughts on this request for prayer? I I I don't know. Uh, you know what what uh, what are the mayor's religious practices? Um, I come from a Christian tradition. And, um, within the Christian tradition, there was a, um, he's considered an early church father, um, origin, O-R-I-G-E-N. And, and origin was, was a, a pivotal theologian and, and, an early Christian leader. And, you know, he, he developed this concept in Latin called ora et labora, uh, which means pray and work. And I, I would tell the mayor that if, uh, and I believe he comes from, the mayor comes from a Christian tradition as well, 
um, that he understand that the, especially the early Christian tradition did not understand prayer unless it involved work. And, and in fact, one of the uh, New Testament writings, uh, the book of James, says that faith without works is dead. So this allusion to um, pray and, and everything will, will just magically work itself out, that's not how it works. So, <laughs> so I disagree with the mayor on this on both theological and political grounds. Um, and, and the fact is that, um, that this, this issue involves work and it involves the right work. And in this case, um, it is restoring what has been taken away from our kids. Um, and, and that's the bottom line. Yeah, definitely a moral issue. I, I feel like the word social justice, and I feel like this also kind of revolves around that idea. The word social justice, at least growing up to me, meant something. But nowadays, it, it has been highly charged and highly politicized. And I even hear the right uh, vilify the word social justice as if it's some type of uh, bad word. Um, your thoughts on the idea of social justice and our role as believers, as citizens, our, our, our duty to social justice? You know, I, I will say this, uh, that the right, right, um, the religious and political right, um, they've done a good job at co-opting certain terms and redefining them for their own benefit. Um, and so, so you know, um, I think the, the, the term social justice is one. Um that does not have any negative connotations at all. Uh, you know, and in fact, I would dare say, uh, and comfortably so, um, again, as, as uh, someone reared in the Christian tradition, that the entire message of, of Jesus, this figure that Christians um, hold as a center of their faith, his entire message was about social justice. And, and it was literally about uplifting the least of these. Um, so there's nothing pejorative about the term. But again, I think the, 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 the right has done um, um, an amazing job at co-opting these terms, redefining them, and vilifying them. So think about even the term pro-life, right, that has been um, defined in, in such a myopic way. Um, there, there is no... Um, a broad understanding of what that could mean, right? Um, even let's think about the term religious freedom. Um, and, you know, re religious freedom has, the, I'll, I'll put it this way, the, the, the founders of this country did not understand religious freedom the way that the right does today, right? Um, and, and if one were to speak to those on, on you know, the right today, about religious freedom signifying something that extends beyond even their own religious belief and to embrace um, any any form of religious thought, including atheism, um, that that is vilified as well. So, so there's nothing wrong with the term uh, social justice. Um, I... You know, again, I, I believe, well, I believe that, um, that the well-being of all humanity in our world together depends on, um, how we practice social justice. There's nothing more significant for, I think, for human thriving than that. And we cannot allow, um, a certain, um, sector within this country to co-opt these terms and define them for us. I think we need to do a better job at, at pushing back. Absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking of the Hebraic tradition and the prophets who very much were about yes. um, making sure that we did right by the orphan, the stranger, the foreigner in our land. I'm, I'm thinking of Micah who wrote uh, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Right. Um, 
And when I think of that tradition, and even within all of the, the major traditions, and I can't think of a spiritual tradition that does not embrace um, helping those that are in need, the marginalized, the oppressed, I, I really can't understand how we've gotten to this place, even within our schools, that the word social justice somehow has been stigmatized. Um, what should be the role? I, I have some really strong ideas of there should be separation of church and state. And yet, as I get older, I, I do honor the, the faith tradition that I once um, walked in. What should be the, the role of faith leaders um, and faith organizations, faith-based organizations uh, this show is about uh, schools and public schools. What should be that role um, within public schools? Is there a role for faith inside of our schools? Well, I, I, I would say that that um, faith leader, when it comes to schools, um, um, you know, I, I believe that the, that faith leaders should limit their work um, to ensuring that there's equity and fairness um, for our children. And, and, and therefore, the only influence that faith should have should be um, that to have, it, it should have that or lead to that component of, of making sure that all our kids um, can experience equity and fairness in terms of uh, budgeting, in terms of, of quality of education, in, in terms of uh, making sure that, that uh, our kids and teachers have the resources they need um, to, to produce the quality of education that children deserve. Um, and, and, and I believe that's the extent of it. Uh, you know, I, I I I strongly believe in in the separation of um, uh, I'm going to say church and state. Th those terms are not in our constitution, obviously, but but uh, there is something to the idea that that um, uh, faith should not interfere uh, with the state, and vice versa, right? Um, but but I think that there is something to uh, faith leaders engaging in the type of work that will ensure that everyone, that every single child can have a solid education. And so as part of that, here we now have a mayor who has total control of our school system. I understand that you once were part of the elected community school boards back when we did have elected community school boards. Can you tell us your your thoughts about the the idea of mayoral control today? Um, I know there's a lot of been said about community school boards and somehow them being have failed our city, um, that somehow they were corrupt. Just your thoughts on mayoral control um, and democracy within our school governance. Yeah, you know, so yeah, so I, I was, um, I, I was, I think I was part of the last class of school board members. I was elected in 1999 in um, East Harlem School District Number Four. I was, I was a mere 21 years old. I believe I was the youngest um, elected school board member. I know definitely in District Four. I don't know um, whether that was the case in the city of New York. Um, you know, I, I always had this. Uh, social justice bent right i uh um this uh desire to to serve my my communities and and um you know i was on staff with a, a, state, a then state assembly member and and for me um you know doing the school board thing was just a, a natural a natural fit so yeah so we had the, the school boards then by the time i came on board the the powers of uh school boards had been had been significantly reduced. Um, and part of it is, Daniel, you, you highlighted the fact that um, for some time there was um, just sheer, sheer corruption um, and the, our school boards were essentially taken over by many political organizations. This was not the case 
in all school districts, but in some it, it, it was, right? So um, who became a school board member depended on um, what political club you belonged to and who your political godfather was. Uh, so, so in, and, and, and at one point, school boards had a lot of power, um, and that power meant um, um, personnel power, so who became principal, right, um, was, was a school board decision. Who became the superintendent of, of the district was a school board decision. Um, educational policy was, was in some ways um, impacted by a school board. So, um, and school boards, by the way, uh, became a reality uh, post-1969 after uh, the decentralization fight. So, Daniel, it's it's amazing how cyclical um, history is because the centralization of our educational system was so heavy-handed that it called for a change. But then the consequence of that, uh, unfortunately, became uh, political players uh, wanting to take advantage of that for their own gains, and now we have it go to another extreme. And and I believe that we face ourselves now. That, and by the way, that led to another centralization process where now we have mayoral control of our of our schools. And but we see here, and and this is my critique of the mayor Adams um, um, administration that um, the I think that the, the decentralization process really called for a type of accountability that was necessary within our educational system. And um, so those that wanted mayoral control say, well, now the mayor is accountable. The, but the thing is that when we have someone that approaches um, their job especially in this case, the way that Mayor Adams has done, then, then it does a disservice to our kids and to our parents. So, so I, I believe that I think we need to, again, call for some type of balance um, because what we're seeing here now, and even the, the, the I would say it is a disregard, but even not seeing the necessity of engaging in conversation and dialogue with parents, with education advocates, with community leaders about these issues. I think that's, that's troubling, troubling and disturbing. Um, so, so I think there's something to, um, perhaps the state legislature, because this is the state legislature's job. Um, and, and, and the governor, um, you know, state education laws determines what happens at the local level, right? Education is a state matter. Um, and, and that's just a constitutional issue. I think that the, what we're experiencing may call for a reevaluation of, of our, um, educational laws and, and governance and school governance. I, I think that, that it may be time to revisit that. Yeah, I think everything about this present situation, and, and it wasn't just Mayor Adams. You, know, you start off with Mayor Bloomberg, and we know what the Bloomberg years did to. Yes, yes. Um, you look at de Blasio, especially how he handled the COVID pandemic, um, especially in our schools. And now you see Mayor Adams. I, I think New Yorkers uh, are now ready for a, a different type of system. I, I don't know what that looks like. It may not look like the, the old uh, school boards, but uh, I'm with you. I feel like there needs to be some balance. There needs to be some accountability and there has to be real authentic um, input from, uh, from community. And it's not just two minutes at a, at a PEP meeting. It's, it's the stakeholders being part of the, the determination. I want to thank you, Eli, for the conversation today. Thank you for, for being a part of this space today. And, and there's so much um, uh, I think we have in common and we can continue to dialogue about. Thank you, Eli. So finally, this week I had an opportunity to join the many advocates, parents, educators, students that have been bird-dogging this mayor uh, about these budget cuts uh, throughout the summer. 
I was joined with a, another fellow activist, Maria Bautista of the Alliance of Quality Education. This was in uh, South Ozone Park, Queens, in a neighborhood that I grew up in. I grew up in this uh, neighborhood. I'm a New York City school teacher. And defunding our schools is just as impactful as climate change. Thank you. you need to defund our schools, restore the $469 million that you've taken from us. Faith leaders have prayed with you, but we need you. We need you to now act on those prayers. Restore the $469 million. Mayor Adams is asking us to pray for him because he's lost his way. He's beholden to millionaires and billionaires that want to defund public education. That means our children, they are profiting and pilfering off our children. Mayor Adams, do the right thing and fund our schools. Mayor Adams, we need our schools funded. $469 million that you took from them. We need you, we need you to restore the $469 million that belong to our children. You're taking arts programs from them, music programs from them. It's shameful. It's shameful that you take from our kids. You funded police officers overtime $1 billion. And all we're asking is for you to fully fund public education. It's wrong. You've been dodging parents. You told them to stop, and we won't stop until you fund our public schools. Environmental racism and education racism go hand in hand, Mayor Adams. You've lost your way. You can find it. Fund our schools. The $469 million, Mayor Adams, they belong to our children, school children who are going to go into school in September and not have an art teacher, a music teacher, and other language teachers. You're taking from them, Mayor Adams. You have the power right now to modify the, the budget. All you have to do is tell the city council, I'm going to return the $469 million that I took from them. As you just heard, all the mayor could muster is laughter. Thank you so much, Mi Familia, for joining me today on Talk Out of School. Thank you so much to my co-host, Lainey Hampson. Also, thank you to Brandon and Eli for this important faith discussion and for signing this faith letter along with the other 135 faith leaders who have had the courage to tell this mayor he needs to restore the budget cuts. We'll speak to you soon. Remember, Tribe of Love, that love always wins. This is Julian Joyello, and I'm a listener and supporter of WBAI. I'm a student at NYU, and I live in New York City. And I want to shout out to the other young listeners of WBAI. We have to help keep the station going, and the easiest way to do it is through the WBAI buddy system. If you donate as little as $10 a month, you have proactively promoted free speech radio. Go to the website, WBAI.org, click the donate button, and make a difference. Well, this radio hasn't been working very well the past few days. Peter, where do you live? I'm glad you asked me. It's a secret place. Please tell me. All right, I tell you. Saturday afternoon here on WBAI. That should be time for our favorite program. Yes, just about time. What would you do if I went off the air? We kill ourselves! <laughs> I...
He's cool. He's exciting. This dude is bad. He's sexy. Okay, maybe not. He's a bad mother. Shut your mouth. He's Tony Ryan. On WBAI New York 99.5 FM. He's got both. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Can you dig it? Yeah, 